The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that operates internationally from bases in the UK and the US. Smarter Grid Solutions DERMS products, that's distributed energy resource management systems, are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets onto the grid and in the market. Its software already manages over 400 megawatts of distributed energy around the world, and it's saved customers over $300 million in grid upgrades. To find out more about how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange. And if that's a little too long for you, just click the link in the show notes. What we've been talking about for many years is that the private markets are actually quite slow. I do just want to point out the irony of you saying that, like, this is a solution to private markets being slow. So in comes the government to solve the problem and move much faster. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, the director of the loan programs office at the Department of Energy. A conversation with Jigger Shaw. This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So I had a whole introduction prepared about how we were going to spend 60 minutes on this podcast talking about the U.S. Loan Programs Office and Loan Guarantee Program and never mention the word Solyndra, which I was very proud about. And then Jigger goes and f***s it all up for me by mentioning Solyndra toward the end of the episode. So I'll throw that out the door. And in the meantime, let's talk about the Loan Programs Office. It might actually be the most talked about and yet least understood program within the federal government that has anything to do with climate tech. You may not know this, but it has already invested more than $35 billion into everything from Tesla's first big factory to the first two nuclear reactors to begin construction in the U.S. in more than 30 years. It was also crucial in supporting the first multi-hundred megawatt solar projects that were ever developed and in saving the auto industry during the last recession. And today, it has more than $40 billion of available capacity to throw at the next wave of technology scale-up. And as of a couple of months ago, it has Jigger Shah at the helm. I was thinking about this the other day. I think Jigger and I have known each other for something like a dozen years, back to the days when he founded Sun Edison. And though he's done a bunch of different things since then, I've always found him to have a pretty core mantra that has been consistent throughout the years. Basically, to put words in his mouth, Jigger believes that we have many of the technologies that we need to put us on the right path toward decarbonization today. And further, that those technologies are not as risky in actuality as the capital markets and particularly commercial lenders would make them out to be. Therein lies the arbitrage opportunity that Jigger has basically pursued his entire career in a, in a number of different ways. And now he's got $40 billion of money from the US Treasury to test it out in a whole new arena. So let's hear what he has to say about it. Jigger, welcome. So nice to have you here. <laughs> Great to be back. Uh, how's government life treating you? I have to say it's good. You know, I mean, we're still in COVID time. So uh, my office hasn't changed. It's gone from, you know, like 
my generate office to now it's my LPO office. So Right. <laughs> I gotta say, when I heard that you were joining the administration to run the loan program office, uh, my first thought was, yeah, that that makes sense. I've known Jigger for probably a decade. And I always thought, you know, bureaucrat in waiting. That really seems like <laughs> seems like what Jigger was meant to be. Was it uh yeah. was this like a dream of yours? Had you had you thought about it for a long time, or is this kind of a new it came up suddenly? Yeah, it certainly wasn't a position I lobbied for. So um so uh, generate, as you know, is doing quite well. And so I was really happy to retire into uh having a lot of support staff at Generate and working less hours over time. <laughs> and uh uh that's not some sometimes that's not how your life plan goes. But I'm I was honored to be asked and uh, you know, was uh uh after some trepidation was uh was happy to say yes and and to serving. Yeah, I mean we'll talk about this, but in some ways it feels like it's uh it's a good culmination of decades of the type of work that you've done in a in a private sector context, you know, to finance a lot of the same kinds of things that you're now tasked with financing through the DOE. But let's um for folks who are not familiar, let's start with just a quick overview of what you are supposed to be doing day to day. So what is the loan program office and like what's its mandate? So the loan programs office was uh conceived of and created by uh Senator Pete Domenici in the two thousand and five uh, Energy Policy Act, right? And then enhanced in 2007. Um, it was originally started as a way to fund nuclear plants because, as we all know, those are difficult to do with private money. And then, you know, there was a realization that we actually needed it for advanced fossil uh, plants, uh, for for instance, uh, carbon capture and storage or things like that. And then, of course, renewable energy and energy efficiency, which is where it was most put to use in 2010, 2011 for um for solar and wind projects and geothermal projects. The uh so that that whole program that I just described is called Title 17 and is largely a project finance program although could be used for uh manufacturing in those sectors as well. Um and then we separately have an advanced technology vehicle manufacturing program uh which is where Ford Motor Company received 5.9 billion dollars and Tesla received almost 500 million dollars out of that program and that program is really to stand up supply chain and and things like that and electric vehicles, uh, light weighting of vehicles. So it could be anything that saves fuel economy. And then it's been further expanded to include battery manufacturing and now uh, critical ma- materials, right? Lithium and nickel and cobalt and things like that. And then um, and then a few years ago, we, we got $2 billion added uh, for tribal energy programs. And that program has yet to Put a loan out at this point, but um, but we are working hard to figure out uh, exactly how to how to use that money to help uh, asset construction in in tribes. So it feels like the scope. So as you said, the the programs office started in two thousand five, so it's sixteen years old now. The scope has basically just expanded over time, right? It was originally financing nuclear projects and then financing some other fossil assets during the. George W. Bush administration, then other projects during the Obama administration, then uh, manufacturing, then vehicle supply chain, and now tribal energy as well. So it's just been sort of like expanding its empire sort of slowly but surely as time goes on. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, maybe to take it up a few notches, I think what we've been talking about for many years is that the private markets are actually uh, quite slow. Right, so the venture capital sees the potential in things and jumps in more quickly, et cetera. But when you talk to the commercial debt markets, 
Um, they're, you know, it's a lot of work to get them to pitch something to their credit committee, even if it's a good idea and it saves money and it, you know, generally looks like low risk. They're like, well, we haven't done one before. It's about 500 hours worth of work for us to, you know, educate our credit committee on a new technology. We'd rather not do it. Um, and in general, that doesn't serve the interests of American innovation. Um, and so the program continues to be used to fill that gap. Um, and as the technologies that we worked on in the past become fully bankable, well, then we move on to the next set of frontier technologies that um, that need our assistance. And all along, we're trying to bring commercial banks along so that they um, can learn from what we're doing and and take over uh, so that we're not competing with private markets. I do just want to point out the irony of you saying that like, this is a this is a solution to private markets being slow. So in comes the government to solve the problem and move much faster. <laughs> Though true, it, it may actually be true in some of these cases. Though I do wonder, I mean, we're obviously in an environment right now where capital for climate related stuff is pretty abundant. I mean, certainly more so private capital, more so than it has been, at least in my experience historically. So is it, you think it's still true that all these folks at the commercial banks are saying, eh, it's too much work, like I don't want to bring it to my credit committee, or because they have it from on high now that they have to finance $50 billion of clean energy or whatever it is this year, um, and because there's all of them have that mandate, you know, they're forced to get a little bit more esoteric. Yeah, no, it's a good question. But I mean, I would throw out a couple of examples and, you know, have you think about it. Like, if you look at fuel cell technology, Right, fuel cell technology still does not have an easy time monetizing the thirty percent or twenty six percent ITC um, and in uh, getting debt. Right, so whether it's plug power or Bloom Energy or fuel cell energy or others, I don't think any of them would suggest that they have an easy time getting debt from commercial banks or or other providers. They certainly have uh, an increased ability to get money from equity sources. I mean, you know, Plug Power's market capitalization has allowed it to amass, I think, a $5 billion war chest on its balance sheet, which is fantastic. And, you know, and, but I think that the role that equity plays in the marketplace and the role that debt plays in the marketplace are quite different. And if what you want to do is to get from where we are today, which is around $200 billion worth of climate solutions being deployed every year in the United States, to let's call it a trillion dollars, a year, which is, I think, what we need to meet the president's bold goals around uh, decarbonization of electricity by 2035 and then the whole economy by 2050. Well, that 5X can't just come from equity sources. There has to be commercial debt that plays as well. And I'd give you a couple other examples. So for instance, anaerobic digesters, uh, where you have a lot of renewable natural gas interest in California under the Low Carbon Fuel Standard Credit Program. But there hasn't been a lot of debt that I've seen that has been supporting a lot of those RNG projects. Those are mostly 100% equity financed projects. Um, and I think that would be similar in green cement or in lots of other technologies where I think you and I would believe that the technology has actually become quite mature and has been able to raise uh, equity, um, but the debt has been harder to raise. Yeah, we'll come back to that maturity thing. But first, let's uh, just finish off the description of the loan programs office. I, th I think the other thing that a lot of folks who maybe have heard about the program or know about the Tesla loan or something like that don't fully understand is what are the actual products that you are meant to be offering out of the program? Loans, loans of what kind, loan guarantees, like what's the scope of 
financial products that you have at your disposal? Yeah. I mean, where the federal government's most comfortable is in senior debt. And we need to be the most senior. So, you know, interest rate aside, we're not allowed to like it really have anyone have any superior uh, governance rights or anything else ahead of us as a senior debt. So whether that's direct capital from uh, the U.S. Treasury, which we have the right to write a check from, or whether it's a guarantee, right? So a bank could provide uh, a loan to a project, and then we could provide an 80% guarantee of their position. Um, we always have to be the senior part of the stack. Any other contours to the mandate? Um, term, do you care? I mean, what what interest rate? matters to you like what are the what are the general guidelines yeah so we're allowed to go 30 years um but you know we're limited by let's call it 90 percent of the life of the equipment so if it's 15 year equipment you know so we can go 13 and a half years um and then in terms of the rate uh it's really set by u.s treasuries uh with a kicker on top of it depending on what we negotiate with the office of management budget where um, where the real complexity comes in to the program is this thing called the credit subsidy. So this is where we do a whole analysis, um, and it's really a budget analysis, not a credit analysis, which is why it's so confusing. Um, and what the Office of Management Budget really does is say, um, if this guarantee is provided and we don't allocate enough money in a loan loss reserve to be able to pay for any losses incurred in the future, there is a provision in, obscure provision in the government where once that loan is issued, then any losses incurred shall be funded by the U.S. Congress. So the U.S. Congress doesn't have the ability to not fund it. So that causes the Office of Management Budget to be super conservative. And so they want to make sure that in no circumstances do we under-allocate loan loss. Now, if that loan loss is not provided by the U.S. Congress, which is, was in the 1705 program under the era stimulus bill, then that loan loss has to be provided by the applicant. So that's where we are today, right? So in the Title 17 program, we have you know less than $200 million left of that credit subsidy. Um, and so if somebody needs that credit subsidy because they're a newish company and they don't really have a investment grade credit rating and there's all sorts of ways to not get a lot of points in this credit subsidy model um, well then you got to put money up so for instance you know in the during the era stimulus bill Ford Motor Company was deemed by this model to have a 50 percent loss of uh, chance of failure right probably so, reasonable at the time maybe so at, so that 5.9 billion dollar loan that they took out, you know, we had a we had to assess about a two point eight billion dollar credit subsidy against that. And we had money allocated from the Congress, so Ford didn't have to pay that money. But if they did, you can imagine borrowing five point nine billion at let's call it two percent interest, um, but paying up front a two point eight billion dollar fee for that might make the program on uh, less attractive, right? And so that is some of the idiosyncrasies we have to deal with. And so what you're saying is with the Title 17 program, which is more of the project finance-oriented program, th the current situation is most applicants, if they need the credit subsidy, will have to put up a fair amount of capital? That's right. They have to put up some money or, you know, we really focus on high creditworthy borrowers. Right. Um, well, okay, that's a good segue then into this this next 
question around where in a given technology's maturity cycle is the right place for the federal government, for the loan programs office to play. I mean, you've made like, you know, I, I can't, I cannot describe the number of conversations you and I have had over the years wherein you have said some version of the thing that you already said to me in this podcast recording, which is like, you and I both know there's a whole bunch of tech climate technologies that are technologically mature, but the market does not see them that way, or the traditional commercial lenders do not yet see them that way. And, you know, this is, you've made your career off, off of arbitraging that opportunity, basically, as I see it. Is that the same thing the loan programs office should be doing? Are you looking for technologies that that actually are de-risked from a technological perspective and that that's not widely recognized and so you can get them to that point? Or is there value in the loan programs office actually looking at things that do still have technology risk? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, the right answer is basically that we have an obligation and an ability to do all of it, right? So- so we have the obligation and the ability to do first-of-a-kind deployments of new technology, and we have the obligation and ability to do things that are deemed innovative by conservative commercial banks, right? So we can do both. Um, the reality of the situation is that we've got, let's call it $30 billion or so out of the $46 billion or so that we've allocated, um, that is, we have a fairly straightforward approach to putting out the door, right, uh, under the titles that we talked about. And uh, to put that much money out the door, most of it's going to be innovative, not quite fully approved by the commercial banking sector, but not massively sort of risky from a maturity standpoint, right? So things like uh, green hydrogen, right? Green hydrogen has been around forever, right? Norway used it during World War II, right? The technology is not new in any way, shape, or form. Uh, there's been a lot of incremental technology improvement that's been done by the George W. Bush administration during the hydrogen, you know, R&D heyday um, in the 2000s. And um, the electrolyzer technology that's being available today by Plug Power or Nell or others, like, you know, no one really questions the fundamental science behind it. They question whether they think it can produce hydrogen cost-effectively. But no one thinks that it's going to fail, you know, uh, to produce hydrogen from the splitting of water. Um, and so, you know, like that is something that a commercial bank should be able to underwrite. But you and I both know that there are no commercial banks like lining up to provide debt financing to green hydrogen. And that qualifies for our program. Green hydrogen is probably a good example where I think it could go either way, right? So if you're talking about financing a large deployment, either of a large electrolyzer project that Anel or Plug Power or somebody like that is deploying with like a traditional alkyl in electrolyzer or a PEM electrolyzer or something like that. I, that's right. You know, I don't think it, there's viewed to be a ton of technological risk there. On the other hand, there are also a bunch of newer versions of electrolysis, right? Technologies that are not either of those two, call it a solid oxide electrolyzer or any number of additional, even earlier stage technologies. And so is the is what you're saying that out of that $30 million bucket of things you need to get out the door in a pretty straightforward manner. Probably what you would do in the context of green hydrogen is finance the more mature versions of electrolysis, less so the newer stuff. Yeah. It's not that I'm choosing more mature stuff. It's that by definition, the less mature stuff is coming to our office with a $100 million loan package. And they're you know pushing pretty hard just to get $100 million worth of customers to test that out, right? Whereas the more mature 
uh, but yet to be deployed at scale technologies are the ones asking me for $2 billion, right? And so I'm just saying, if we're going to put $30 billion out the door, then, you know, we get a bunch of loan applications in. And the folks who have $2 billion loan applications are generally the more mature versions. And the ones who are, you know, first-of-a-kind deployments are generally asking me for $100 million. So by definition, like, that's where it'll uh, sort out. Like, we, we're serving anyone who applies for loans from the loan programs office. So it's just the quantum of dollars is usually larger from the folks who have a fairly mature technology base but are still not fully bankable according to the commercial debt markets. That's another vector I was interested to ask you about, which is the scale of projects that makes sense. I mean, as you just mentioned, right, you know, you need to put a lot of money out the door. And so that would certainly from a transaction cost perspective and a resourcing perspective at a minimum, it would make you lean toward bigger stuff. And historically, the loan program has generally given money to bigger stuff, whether it be you know, manufacturing electric vehicles, if you're Ford, or if you're Tesla, rather, or vehicles, if you're, te- or if you're Ford, or whether it be the first, you know, multi-hundred megawatt solar projects, if you're for solar or sun power or something like that. It hasn't been so much for distributed stuff, though I remember actually in the the last iterate, the last wave, um, there were some loan applications from some of the rooftop solar guys that I don't think ever went through. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't complete their loan applications, but um, but we did a lot of work around Solar City, for instance, in 2015. Um, yeah, so I mean, it'd be useful to understand the what and the why here, right? So, um, so when you think about all the government programs, right? USDA provides uh, credit guarantees to solar projects in rural areas. Uh, you've got uh, Department of Transportation programs. Uh, you have. Uh, programs within the U.S. Treasury Department around small business type, you know, financing programs. Um, the vast majority of those programs, if not all of those programs, I think Department of Transportation aside, um, are programs that that guarantee banks, right? So now if we're going to go to a bank, right, and we're going to say to them, hey, we want to do fulcrum biofuels or Red Rocks biofuels or whatever it is, Right. And the bank says, okay, great, you know, we're going to put up $600 million for this project and and we're going to go to the loan program's office, which has the ability to do a, a guarantee of 80%, right? So now it's $600 million, it's 80%. Um, they're going to say, well, we don't really want to take the risk on the other $120 million, right? <laughs> like, like, just because you're giving us a loan guarantee for 80% of $600 million, we don't want to do the other 120. million. So because of that, the Congress gave us the right to write the full $600 million check off the U.S. Treasury balance sheet, right? It's called the Federal Financial Bank. Um, and so so that that is generally what people use us for, right? If they have the ability to just go to Live Oak or Celtic Bank and you know, and do a deal and, and have them apply for USDA guarantee, that's a way easier process than working with the loan programs office, right? So, so they're not going to do that. Um, uh, with us unless unless they need to, right? So that's the first point. I guess the second point is, as a result, um, our processes and procedures were created 
to be able to underwrite things that a bank has not already underwritten, right? When you think about a USDA loan guarantee program, the bank has already underwritten it and we're just, you know, we're just reading the application and going, wow, this is really interesting reading. Sure. We think they did a good job. Here you go. Here's a guarantee. But they did all the work and we're just double checking. Um, if we're providing money directly from the federal financial bank, then we have to do all the work and we have to do all the double checking, right? So the average cost of a loan is about $2 million for us to do. Right. And that includes us going to the national labs and paying them to review the technology and give us a report that says that the technology is actually, you know, going to work. Right. Because sometimes they come back and say it's not going to work or we don't think it's going to work. Um, and so all of that stuff's expensive. So you can imagine if we're doing a bunch of $10 million loans and, and taking on $2 million worth of overhead costs for each $10 million loan, that's going to be difficult to, to do. Right. And justify. So, um, but separately, if you only need ten million bucks, it's almost easier just to go through the USDA uh, and you know figure out some other way to work a deal with the bank and say, well, I'll just put up my house as collateral, you know, to be able to get this done, right? So, so those are not coming to us. So it's generally the larger loans that think it's worth the effort. The other thing I would say is um, the Solar City effort that we did in 2015 was to create a warehouse line, right? And so that is basically saying we can do a bunch of $20,000 loans and put them all together in a $500 million pool. So we've never done a loan like that. We have all the rules in place about how we would do one. And I'm working really hard, particularly on a concept called a virtual power plant to try to figure out how to do those kinds of things. Um, but it is not something the loan programs office has done before, but the staff and the team are very eager to do a deal like that. The Interchange is brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy management software company that specializes in distributed energy resource management systems. Operating from New York and Glasgow, its Durham solutions are used by every distribution utility in the UK and several utilities and energy companies in the US. Internationally, Smarter Grid Solutions manages over 400 megawatts of operational clean energy assets. Cirrus Flex, Smarter Grid Solutions' virtual power plant product, optimizes the operating schedules of distributed energy resources, maximizing returns from energy markets and grid flexibility services. Cirrus Flex pulls together mixed distributed energy assets and fleets to the grid and market, delivering on-site and system value to asset owners, operators, aggregators, and traders. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the value-maximizing virtual power plant solutions offered by Cirrus Flex, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com interchange, or just check out the link in the show notes. This is uh, not a podcast where you get to just allude to a virtual power plant and then not get into the details of what you're talking about. We everybody everybody who listens to this podcast probably knows that virtual power plant means many things to many people. What do you mean when you talk about financing a virtual? It's exactly the opposite of what you were just describing, right? It's like by definition comprised of a bunch of small stuff. Now it could be aggregated up to be pretty big potentially, but what what are you thinking of there? Yeah, I mean, I think that when you we have this really weird um, set of conversations, right? As you know, from uh, the um, uh, Princeton study that shows decarbonization or the UC Berkeley study or the NREL Futures studies, et cetera. What people generally focus on are on, you know, how we take coal and natural gas plants and, you know, make them green by converting them to solar plus uh, storage and wind plus storage, right? That's sort of generally the conversation that we have. And then sometimes we have a conversation about how 
um, we need flexible baseload, right? And we need geothermal or hydro or nuclear or whatever it is that we're talking about that day. Um, but what we rarely talk about is where we're really getting screwed as a country, as you know, is in T&D infrastructure costs, right? That is where the utility companies used to spend $8 billion a year, and now we're spending $35 billion a year on T&D infrastructure costs, right? And the costs just keep going up. As wholesale prices have gone down, we keep spending more money on T&D, right? And so, and I think when you really think about it, there's no way that we're going to decarbonize our grid by 2035 by replacing all of our fossil fuel generators with um, green supply, right? That literally just doesn't work. And anybody who really goes into Chris Clack studies or anybody else's studies knows that you have to be able to modulate demand with the same level of dexterity that you modulate supply, right? And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has given a nod to this under FERC Order 2222. And then, you know, Rich Glick, who has recently taken over, has issued 2222A and, you know, said, said that all the independent system operators and others have to come back to him within 270 days to figure out exactly how they're going to implement this, right? And so we keep talking about this. But then at the same time, we talk about, you know, the California ISO recently said, we think that, you know, DER is performed terribly back last year, and we think they're generally unreliable. And so you're in a situation where you just have all of these like data points, right? We have all those data points about how people lived in their Teslas during the Tesla, uh, during the Texas uh, polar vortex. We have data points around how, how people use their F-150 truck with a seven kilowatt inverter to power their house. Um, and when you think about it, I don't think you and I believe uh, the technology is what's in the, in the way. Right, I think what we agree is, on is that there are all these DER-enabled water heaters and refrigerators and HVAC units, and frankly, even thermostats. Right, you saw the announcement between Home Connect and Google um, recently, and so. But then the question becomes: How do you actually turn that into a virtual power plant? Right? How do you actually use that capacity into the ISO every single day? How do you get utility companies to actually acknowledge that these resources, which we've been mandated since 2007 in California to supply this data to the utilities, how do we make sure that this data is actually now fully integrated into grid operation software so that the so this so solar plus storage and all these other things don't just get viewed as energy efficiency? by the grid operators, because as you know, they don't really have a lot of visibility at the end of the lines. Um, but it's not because we don't have data to share with them. Uh, it's because they don't integrate it, right? So that's so, the wait, virtual you, power plant. You're making, a compelling, you're making a compelling case for demand flexibility in virtual power plants, which is, a, which is an argument I did not need personally for you to make to me. What I want to understand is what role the loan programs office might have in that. Because the challenge, as you're alluding to, is not the technology, right? We have the smart thermostats. We have, we probably need more of the like controllable EV load and controllable water heater load, whatever. We'll get more of that stuff. The challenge is the market mechanism, right? You can't monetize it mostly right now, which is not exactly what you're there to solve. So we can't solve the market mechanism, but what we can solve is, so to me, a virtual power plant is defined by um, how it is um, viewed and used by the borrower to the loan programs office, right? So if Home Connect, or frankly, it could be the city of Fresno, right? You could imagine the city of Fresno might come to us and say, we're tired of fintech companies charging 30% interest to poor people who need a new air conditioner, and the contractor has an app on their phone that allows them to get financing within five minutes. 
And so therefore, we want to work with you, Jigger, to borrow $500 million as the city of Fresno to just finance appliances for poor people, right? So that they're paying 6% interest financing instead of 30% interest financing. And we can do it over 14-year term as opposed to five-year terms so that the payments are much lower, right? And what I would say in return is like, well, we're not here to do consumer financing. So unless you're actually willing to, as a consequence of them using this money, force every uh, end customer to turn on the DER uh, capacity, capabilities of those appliances, then it doesn't really meet the innovation title of the loan programs office, right? And so we can't just fund refrigerators that are Energy Star. We can only fund refrigerators that are Energy Star that are DER enabled because that's new and interesting, right? And then in so doing, City of Fresno, you probably have to do an RFP and pick a company to help edu- uh, do this with, NRV or, or OhmConnect or Voltus or you know, you name the companies, all of whom have some sort of middleware software that can help with this group, and they might even need a loan platform, right? Loan Pal, Solar Mosaic, Dividend Solar, whoever, who can actually handle the $1,200 loans and send out the bills every month and do all that stuff, right? Spark Fund, et cetera. And so now you've, so you have this sort of ecosystem that comes together. The city of Fresno may not care. From their perspective, they're like, we just want you know, poor people in our communities to stop getting preyed upon by fintech companies charging 30% interest. And, but what I could say is like, well, we're not really allowed to help you do that. What we're allowed to help you do is build a virtual power plant, which kind of is the same thing, except you just have to turn on the DER features of the, of the appliances and you have to register with one of these other folks, right? And the full repayment of the virtual power plant is coming from consumers, right? They're paying the 6%, 7% interest, whatever it is. Um, so there's actually no grid revenues required to make this program work, right? I mean, th- their benefits of doing it is just dropping the interest rate from 30% to 6%. Um, but there's a bunch of revenues that could come in, right? Once the California ISO or other ISOs like actually implement for, for quarter 2022. And then at that point, the city of Fresno could say, well, those are our revenues because we helped facilitate this and contractually those are our revenues, not the people who own the appliances. It's up to them. Uh, what the legal contracts say. And if they collect the money, they could say, well, we collected so much money in grid services, we're going to let everyone not pay their December payment because we just made so much money on grid revenues, right? Or they could say, actually, there's people that are so poor that they couldn't even qualify for the loans that we put forward. And we're going to use all that money to provide grants to people to provide them with modern appliances um, to be able to do this, right? Got it. Okay. I have a better understanding of what how you could how you could wrap your head around a virtual power plant off, uh, making sense for a loan programs office. We've talked about a couple of technologies here, you know, DERs in general. You mentioned green hydrogen. Let's talk about a couple of others, um, maybe a couple under Title 17, so project type stuff, and then a couple under the advanced uh, technology vehicles manufacturing program that you think are interesting. So first on the project side, what are the other kinds of things that you think are are well suited to the program today? Well, so under the fossil title, you know, certainly carbon sequestration and storage is a big, you know, thing. We've got, I think, over $12 billion of applications for $8.5 billion of capital there. So we'll see how many of those applications go all the way through the process and make it through underwriting. But um, but we certainly have a lot of interest there. I think, you know, um, on biofuels, we have a lot of interest there. There's certainly a lot of projects that want to feed into the California low carbon fuel standard credit program or the new Washington state program or the Oregon program, et cetera. Um, 
on you know nuclear, we've got a lot of interest from the advanced reactors. So folks like uh, uh, the small module reactors and the micro reactors. Um, and you know, to me, that's an area where we, the the U.S. really could build a viable supply chain and win the day in a way that it wasn't able to do with really the AP one thousands. So that's also um, an area where I think it's. I mean, you might disagree with this, but I think it's hard to make the case that that's like technology that is de-risked and the market doesn't recognize it yet. There's risk there still. We haven't done this yet. Uh, hmm. So I don't think that's true. I certainly think that the market believes that, but I don't think that's true. I think when you look at the nuclear Navy and how long we've been operating small module reactors and micro-reactors on ships, uh, a lot of this technology is actually just repurposed from those technologies. In fact, I'd say that the two... Uh, companies who've made it into a, a nuclear regulatory commission uh, filing, right? New Scale and Oklo, both of those technologies are 30 years old. I mean, n- neither one of those technologies are innovative from the perspective of fundamental science. They're certainly innovative in that, you know, New Scale has proven that they can use a lot cheaper safety mechanisms um, by reducing the size of the reactor. And there's all sorts of things that they're, uh, you know, proving to the nuclear regulatory commission. Um, and Oklo's design is, I mean, some version of that's been tested at the Idaho National Laboratories for 30 years. So, so I don't think this is new technology. Although, as you and I, you know, agree that deployment-led innovation will allow those technologies to start at X cents a kilowatt hour, and I think they'll end up at you know fairly low cost per kilowatt hour over time. Uh, so I interrupted you a little bit, and you're talking about nuclear, next-gen nuclear, small modular, and micro reactors. Anything else that you would call out? I'd say like hydropower. Um, there's a ton of technologies from the UK and Eastern Europe that have never been deployed here in the United States that are all, you know, sort of uh, ability to use river run hydro, you know, sub one megawatt power plants. We have like 20 plus thousand non-powered dams that the Army Corps of Engineer manages that, you know, could easily be used to provide power. And pumped hydro has been around for years. And there's a lot of advanced technology, but we haven't really built a new pumped hydro power plant in this country for 30 years. Um but also, I would say wind. Uh, there's a ton of new wind technologies that are coming around. Like you've seen the, you know, the companies that are uh, able to figure out a way to use aircraft to to um, build 10 megawatt, you know, wind turbines in the United States and uh, onshore. Uh, there's uh, lots of designs where you can uh, use new tower designs to go 20 meters higher. Uh, than you're able to before to catch a lot more wind. So a lot of that stuff would would qualify. So, And then transmission, right? There's a ton of smart transmission technologies and others that we've really never deployed here in the U.S. All right, and then let's talk about the manufacturing side. Um, you know, we obviously have this this storied history of kind of using the loan guarantee program in part to save the auto sector during the last recession and in part to get companies like Tesla up off the ground. Basically, it's hard to imagine they would have been successful without having access to the to the program, what's kind of the next, uh, what's the next phase that we need there? Or is it more, you know, EV manufacturing, which we need a lot more of too? Yeah, so it's both. I mean, so we currently only have the right to fund passenger vehicles. So there's a bill in Congress to expand our capacity to do medium and heavy duty trucks. But we don't have that capacity now. So we limit ourselves to, I'm not sure what the number is, but let's call it 10,000 pounds or something. Um, and then but there's a lot of things that qualify from like, for instance, like lightweighting. Um, so advanced steel, advanced aluminum um, that are used to lightweight vehicles to get them higher fuel economies. 
uh, standards is something that you know qualifies for the loan programs office. Um, the battery supply chain, I think you and I both know there's tons of companies who have alternatives to graphite, alternatives to you know other uh, to the standard lithium ion battery that we can we can fund. Uh, and those are often billion dollar manufacturing facilities. Um, and then there's all the uh, EV infrastructure. So, you know, like, uh, you know, charging stations and, and, and all that. Some of them have advertising, you know, heavy models. Some of them have subscription-based models. Some of them have microgrids built into the EV chargers to avoid demand chargers, <laughs> demand charges uh, and all that stuff. And then, and then you've got um, critical minerals, right? So we've got a bunch of technology companies that are, you know, mining lithium out of the brine and the Salton Sea and, you know, figuring out ways of finding uh, nickel and cobalt. You also have a lot of recycling companies that are finding ways to recycle lithium-ion batteries and recycle uh, heavy metals in general, which right now we outsource most of that to Malaysia, which then goes to China. Uh, but keeping a lot of that copper and other, you know, heavy metals uh, here in the United States and not letting them go to other countries via cell phone recycling and that kind of stuff is something that qualifies for our program. That kind of sounds like, I mean, you're describing like everything in some ways. So do you, do you find yourself, um, are you demand constrained or supply constrained? Do you have more applicants than you have capital or do you have more capital than you have applicants at the moment? Well, we certainly have a lot of capital. I mean, I think that the, um, the loan programs office has largely been dormant to use the secretary's words from her confirmation hearing, uh, since 2011. Right. So to be clear, like we haven't, like we've put more money out the door since 2011, but mostly it's been to existing borrowers that were meeting milestones, right? Like the Vodal nuclear plant or other things. Uh, we've onboarded a couple of new projects like uh, Cape Wind and uh, uh, this Lake Charles methanol uh, plant, but neither one of them has actually used the money. Cape Wind, you know, as we know, didn't make it and the Lake Charles methanol plant hasn't raised their equity yet. So, um, so in, in terms of the office, I mean, it has been largely dormant, right? So as the secretary came in and the president came in, there's been a lot of enthusiasm and interest uh, in the program. And so you've got a lot more people who are calling me, and I've talked to over 100 CEOs since I've come in, and you know, mostly to make personal appeals and saying, look, I mean, I don't know what you've heard, but we're not hard to deal with. Um, you know, we're not going to, uh, you know, we're not a scarlet letter, you know, to use the money. You remember in, in the Solyndra sort of post-Solyndra scandal, there were CEOs that were dragged up to Capitol Hill and a lot of folks were like, you know, I don't want to deal with this anymore. So, um, so you know, gaining the trust of potential borrowers has been really important. Uh, and it's certainly something that I've worked really hard on to get people to apply. We've got about 20 some billion dollars worth of active projects in the pipeline now. We've gotten about $40 billion worth of... Um, uh, advanced conversations uh, that I've had from people that I'm trying to convince to apply for uh, the loan programs office. So that would give you, you know, $60 billion. You know, and I know that some percentage of them will fall out and not meet the requirements of the program, et cetera. So, you know, my sense is we still have a long ways to go to be able to actually know that we're going to put $30 billion out the door. So, you know, right now I'd say we, we're long capital and short on deals. Um, the other thing I'd say is super hard and problematic and is something that has been super hard and problematic for 30 years uh, is getting uh, potential borrowers reprogrammed to understand how to even use these muscles, right? I mean, like the city of Fresno is not sitting there going, wow, 
we have everyone ready to go to like, you know, apply for this money, right? But they should be, right? I mean, even even cities of, you know, with 50,000 households can put $100 million to work in the way that I described it, right? 50,000 households, those are not large, gigantic cities. Um, and so, but they don't know that they should be applying for this money. They don't know that this actually could be a huge economic boon for, you know, their city, right? I mean, folks that have wastewater treatment plants that are at the end of life, like we have technologies that we've had for 20 years that are ready to go to be deployed. And so a lot of these folks aren't applying because they don't know to apply and they don't know which consultants to hire to apply. I mean, the loan application isn't three pages, you know, it is a long loan application. So, you know, figuring that out, like there's a lot of this blocking and tackling that we have to do to get people to really be interested in applying. All right. What's the one idea that technology or idea uh, that you're you're waiting to see somebody pitch you, but nobody's pitched you yet. Well, I mean, I mean, frankly, I'm doing a lot more pitching than people are pitching me, right? So, like, I mean, I'm convincing people to apply. So, I think the virtual power plan is one that I'm super excited about. I, I'd say that there's a lot of uh, other uh, areas that that I'm very excited about around. Um, you know, smart transmission technologies. I've had a really hard time getting smart transmission technologies to apply for the money. Um, and you and I know that like smart wires, for instance, is being fully deployed throughout the UK and adding gigawatts of capacity and bringing offshore wind to London. So, you know, we have uh, about 70% of our entire T&D capacity is going unused while we are completely overrun with, you know, needs for new transmission. Right. And so it'd be nice to get those folks to apply. But I'd say also on the biofuel space, it is inconceivable to me that we are going to decarbonize our entire electricity, sorry, our entire transportation supply chain just with EVs. Like, I just don't think that's going to happen. And so, like, we need advanced biofuels. We have to have some way to do that to meet our 20, you know, 50, 50 targets. And, you know, I'd also say that. You know, the one area that I'm completely shocked by is just the lack of interest from the natural gas industry. Um, I think that they have, they, you know, they largely missed the boat with T. Boone Pickens and the Pickens plan and, you know, the era stimulus. And I think they're missing the boat here. Like there are, are tremendous ways for the natural gas industry to be innovative and to be, uh, you know, to use the loan programs office to find their way to being a fundamental part of the 2035 and the 2050 story. And I don't think that they've really thought through how to do that. You mean things like like methane pyrolysis, trying to turn natural gas into like hydrogen and solid carbon or RNG maybe, or hydrogen blending sure. in the natural gas system or any of that stuff? Sure. All of the above, right? I mean, I mean, and even just, even just methane leakage, right? And figuring out how to like eliminate methane leakage, which we know is, is, you know, happening at scale throughout all of our supply chains, right? And there's tons of technologies that, you know, you've probably invested in and I've certainly seen that um, are advanced methane detection systems, right? Using satellite imagery and all sorts of other things, right? So there's lots of ways for us to actually save gargantuan amounts of greenhouse gas emissions. And I, I don't think that the natural gas industry has really figured out, uh, you know, how to take advantage of this, you know, opportunity to, you know, rebuild our entire economy. All right. Well, I look forward to having you back on the podcast in a year so that we can then talk about all the cool loans that you've made where all of your pitches yielded all this success and suddenly you're <laughs> inundated with too many applications and you can't deal with it. Well, thanks for giving me a chance to explain what the Loan Programs Office does. I think it's super uh, 
critical as part of the innovation supply chain around you know taking early stage innovation and then figuring out how to get to full market acceptance and bankability. And my sense is it's an area where uh, a lot of folks, particularly in the venture capital community, but also in other communities, haven't really spent a lot of time uh, really understanding the details of, but I think it's going to be critical for a lot of their companies to make it to the other side. Yeah, it's a funny moment now, uh, you know, in the world of venture capital where, you know, the thing that had scared venture capitalists away about climate tech, clean tech as it used to be called, more than anything else was capital intensity, right? And the reason things are capital intensive is because you got to build big things. And the reason it's hard to build big things, first of a kind, is that you need to be able to finance it somehow. And the worry of venture capitalists is that that money's not going to be there. And so you're going to have to finance it with our money, you know, with the, the corporate equity that we're giving you. And that's the absolute worst use of our money. And so that was the thing that scared everybody off of, of this sector. And that sort of has changed somewhat in the last 12 months as things like SPACs popped up where like companies found a whole new way to finance capital intensive assets, which was from the public markets. But now that that is starting to dry up a little bit and there's this backlash that's starting to happen in the market. Well, the bloom like, is definitely off the rose. Yeah, so to speak, and off of bloom for that matter. Oh. And uh, <laughs> But now that that's happening, I think it's like time to turn back to, wait a minute, there are other ways. If you, you can build a capital-intensive successful technology business that does not require you to SPAC. Like that was never a necessity in this market. In fact, the loan program is one really important facet of how you can do that. And so I think I think people will kind of turn their eye back toward it now. Well, for sure. But the other piece of it is that, you know, if you've got to increase the deployment of infrastructure from 200 billion to a trillion a year, I think it's it's pretty obvious that you can raise that money in solar plus storage, wind plus storage. It's not crystal clear to me that you could do it in geothermal yet, but maybe you can. But low impact hydro, some of these other areas, like, I mean, as we move all the way through 2035, it could be the case that money center banks and venture capitalists and others agree that, in fact, the commercial banking system will never, you know, take more risk and and lean in. And so the only way to actually decarbonize our economy by 2035 and then our electricity by 2035 and then the economy by 2050 is actually to get Congress to give the loan programs office an additional $100 billion right, to provide that that bridge, right? That it could be that that's the only way to do this. I hope it's not. I hope we can actually just keep recycling the capital and and keep going into, um, you know, like just the first $2 billion and then the commercial markets take over. But at the speed at which we have to decarbonize everything to get to our goals, like it may be that the commercial banks are never fast enough to, you know, to be there. Jigger, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun and obviously brings back extraordinary memories. Jigger Shah is the director of the Department of Energy's Loan Programs Office. You also probably know him as the former co-host of our sister podcast, The Energy Gang. What did you think? Uh, give us a rating as always or a review. Let us know how we're doing or tell us directly. Tweet at us at at Interchange Show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. Do you know someone else who would enjoy the show? Send the podcast their way. We love finding new listeners. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. <laughs>